Well, as we've sung this morning, as Adam shared this morning, we come week by week to cast our cares upon the Lord and trust Him with the difficulty and the struggles of that week, of the circumstances of our lives. We were uh, reminded last night at Disciple Me um, how even through difficulties and the troubled soul of sadness and depression, uh, we can go to the Lord as our comfort and our strength. This morning we were reminded in song from Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so as we approach God's word this morning, we approach it with confidence. We approach it with hope. Because as the Lord has revealed throughout the generations and throughout all history, he is faithful. And he is faithful to accomplish his purposes. And he is working for our good. And so in those things, we find hope this morning. And so we go to God's word this morning to look and find hope in the person of Jesus Christ. As we study through the life of Christ, we see his faithfulness. We see his mercy and grace. We see his authority and his power and his rule over all. We see him as the living word. So I'd ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. As we shared last week, Jesus is warning the great people of Israel many great pilgrims and inhabitants of Jerusalem that had come to the city for the Passover feast. Jesus is uh, in the last week of his earthly ministry. And there, as he is ministering in the temple, he is proclaiming and preaching his final public address, his final public sermon. And it's almost as if Jesus has just had enough. It's almost as if Jesus is faced with this final opportunity before the people, before he displays the great love of God uh, by dying upon the cross and rising from the grave, that he's going to uh, proclaim with his authority and with his power the truth of God's word and the warning to avoid the teachers of Israel. These religious leaders, these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees that had been false teachers and had led people astray. And so last week we looked in the sermon, of the first part of Jesus' sermon to us in regards to a warning for us to submit ourselves to proper biblical teaching. And you came back this week and that's encouraging to me knowing that you do not count us as false teachers and erroneous teachers, or maybe you are listening, one of the two. But it is so important for us, as Jesus warned, that we be considerate and understand the word of God so that we might understand whether that which is delivered to us is actually true and which aligns with the way God intended the scriptures to be preached. And now he kind of turns his direction from the warning 
to of the crowds against the religious leaders to a flat out clear and definite condemnation toward these men. This is famously known as the seven woes of Jesus. They're seven woes because they're statements that, first of all, are generated out of love. Even the, the woes of condemnation that Jesus will, will uh, that we will read today come from a heart of love. Let's be honest. When we speak truth to people, we speak it in love. And the very idea that we are speaking truth to them, even if it is a rebuke or a condemnation, we are doing so in, a, in, a, in the framework of a warning because we love them. If we didn't love them, we wouldn't warn them. If we didn't love them, we wouldn't speak truth to them. And so the very essence of Jesus and his condemnation must reflect the love of Jesus Christ for even his enemies. And let that challenge us this morning. Many of us in recent days have had to have difficult conversations with difficult people. And what does God require of us? He requires us to speak truth. Don't allow Satan to lie to you and think that that by speaking against someone's sin in your life that you don't love them. That's a lie. The very idea of speaking against sin is because you love them and because you serve the God of truth who has commanded you to speak the truth in love. So that know that God is honored when you go to someone and you share your greatest concerns and your greatest hurts as they hurt themselves. Know that God is glorified in that. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's warning these Pharisees out of love. And also that warning is an opportunity, right? As we warn people, we warn them as a, as a reflection of, of the available time and opportunity that they have to repent. We had a com- I had a conversation this past week with a young man that has clearly demonstrated in his life that he does not love the Lord Jesus. And although having to speak very difficult words to him and make it very clear that his life did not reflect the fruit of salvation and righteousness, the hope in my statements were this, you still have an opportunity to repent. The fact that you are ve- even hearing this gentle, loving rebuke is an opportunity, opportunity for you to repent and turn to Christ before that opportunity is gone. And so Jesus speaking a condemnation to these religious leaders flows from the love that he has even for his enemies. And so as he re- rebukes these men, what we're going to see And what I want to draw out of this text this morning are six qualities found in these Pharisees that reflect simply the nature of sin. Six qualities of the nature of sin that is present in all humanity, but most importantly, that Jesus Christ rescues rescues us from those things when we believe in him. 
Now, what I don't want us to do this morning is come to a text like this and put ourselves in some different category than the Pharisees. Matter of fact, today, the title of my sermon is The Pharisee in All of Us. Because these are six qualities that we all struggle with in our sin. If you follow Christ and you have surrendered yourself to him, there is still a waging war going on with your flesh. These are still battles that you face day by day. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, then these, these things that we mentioned today, have, they have enslaved you. You are in bondage to them. They rule your life. And so as we look at these things, these condemnations from the Lord Jesus, these six qualities of the nature of sin, we will look to Christ and see that he is our rescuer. That even by hearing of these qualities, we know that Jesus Christ has provided a way of escape. That there is hope in him and him alone. So we have no reason to despair. No, the only reason to despair would be if, like these Pharisees, we're so entrapped by this, this sin that we don't want to escape. That we would enjoy the gratification of our flesh over the resurrection or the, the restoration of the Lord Jesus. So let's look at these. Let me read chapter 23, verses 12, or verses 13 down to verse 33. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribe, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when, you, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. <clears throat> Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by, this, by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven <clears throat> swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you also have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, 
that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we, have li- if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? We're going to move through these points quickly because there's six of them. And you know I like to linger. The first one, the first quality of the nature of sin is the stumbling block to salvation. Jesus says in verse 13 that these religious leaders are the very stumbling blocks to the world. That they are the very ones who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That they neither enter themselves, nor do they allow those who would enter to go in. This is clearly a declaration of these Pharisees who are living in such a way that they are stumbling blocks to people in their salvation. That they are leading people astray as if they are standing at the door of eternity with people pursuing to go in and they are shutting the door in their face. To say it another way, they are workers of Satan that are snatching away the seeds of the gospel as Jesus tells us in Matthew 13. They are the very ones who are prohibiting people to understand what is true and right about the Lord Jesus Christ. They are roadblocks to salvation. Now we need to be clear that while they may be the security guards at the door keeping people from entering in, these men are not personally responsible for people in hell. They are not personally responsible for people in hell. God will hold all teachers accountable for the lies and the erroneous things that they have taught throughout of this world, but no one thwarts the plan of God in salvation. No one stands in the way of God drawing someone into the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing that these religious leaders can possibly do to thwart the hand of God. Every one of us is responsible to choose Christ. And if if the Lord Jesus Christ, if it has been deemed that we will be saved, then brothers and sisters, we will be saved. If there are loved ones in our family, in our, in our, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our workplaces that you pray fervently for to come to know Christ, if it is God's plan for them to be saved, then God will save them. 
But we must acknowledge the reality and the spiritual war that is going on in our world today where people are stumbling blocks, ripping away the opportunity in those moments for the gospel. We must call out these false teachers. We must state the reality of their heresy. We must state the reality of their error. And we must acknowledge their condemnation. Why? Because it should drive us, it drive a fear into us so that we would evaluate our own lives and make sure that we are not being stumbling blocks. That we are not the ones, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. These great popular men in Jerusalem were stumbling blocks because they did not understand the true nature of God that he has revealed himself in the word. How do we know? How do we make sure that we are not being stumbling blocks? We know the word of God. And see, this is the danger, church, is that when we fashion ourselves and fix ourselves to one person or one preacher in our lives, and we are not students of the word of God, as that ship begins to sail off course, we are riding along the same ship. We are following along the same path and the same wind that is carrying our sails down the same road of error. And let's just be honest, it's easier that way. If I can just believe what Pastor Nathan tells me, and trust me, I'm not trying to, to lead you astray and tell you not to believe in me, but if you, if, if you only believe what I say, you can't hold me accountable to what I say by what the Word of God says. The Word of God is eternal, not what I say. We must be sure that we are not being stumbling blocks. But we must acknowledge that the world around us, all unbelievers, in some way or some fashion, by the nature of sin itself, are being stumbling blocks to others. What I mean is that there is no gray area in the world. If you are not for Christ, you are against him. And if you are living according to a worldview of Satan and evil, then you are leading other people astray. If you're not living in a biblical worldview with uh, principles according to God's word, then you are a stumbling block to other people toward the gospel. There is no middle ground. There's no peaceful middle. There's no demilitarized zone when it comes to whether you are for Christ or against him. If you don't follow Christ and you don't believe in him, then you are a stumbling block to other people trusting in Christ by the very nature of sin. But number two, not only does the nature of sin produce this simple stumbling block to salvation, but it takes it a step further. These Pharisees were not only stumbling blocks, they were disciple makers of depravity. They were disciple makers of depravity. They just did not shut the door, 
But in verse 15, the second woe to Jesus, that Jesus mentions is that they are traveling across the sea and across the land making proselytes. These are converts to the Jewish faith. But these weren't converts to following Yahweh. These were converts to their man-made traditions. These were men that would travel and, and, and teach and, and accumulate students underneath them in such a way that they were literally reproducing themselves. So that these disciples of depravity would continue the error of this world. They would learn the traditions that were placed, the heavy burdens of tradition and legalism that were placed upon the people. They would learn the interpretations of the rabbis and not the right interpretation of the scripture. They would carry on this process so that Joseph Smith's become an entire faith cult known as uh, Mormonism. It's one thing if a doctor is medically negligent and is responsible for the death of many, of many patients of his through malpractice. But it's quite another thing if that doctor is hired by a prestigious medical school to train others in his deadly ways. And J.C. Ryle says that these Pharisees, they acted in such a way from no desire to benefit men's souls in the least or to bring them to God. They only did this to swell the ranks of their sect, to increase the number of the adherents and in their own importance that their religious zeal arose from sectarianism and not from the love of God. This was a great sin, he says. And this is why Jesus very plainly spoke to the Pharisees and the, the Jews who followed him and said that you are from your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we portray such a reproduction? Well, simply it's this. There is always someone learning from us. There is always someone that we are teaching, whether we are consciously or unconsciously aware of it. And so if we are living toward holiness if we are as believers living toward righteousness, then that will naturally be taught to people below us. Naturally be taught to the, the childlike eyes that are learning from us. But if we are living like these Pharisees, if we are embracing sin, unwilling to repent, then we also are disciple makers of depravity because we are carrying that sin to the generation and the next generation, and the next generation. And so we as followers of Jesus Christ, we are personally responsible to live lives and pursue lives of holiness, not just for ourselves, but so we don't influence and impact those below us that might go, oh, 
Pastor Nathan does these things. Seems like a pretty legitimate thing to do. Instead of living according to what the word of God says. And of course, all who reject Christ are disciple makers of depravity. Because we are, because they are influencing people away from the gospel and the truth of God's word. These disciple makers of depravity are like, te- they're like on the teaching payroll of the University of Satan as they try to spread his deluded and damning doctrines across this landscape. And this is what the religious leaders were doing, seeking out others to spread their filth across the land, and Jesus had had enough. And he's proclaiming this before the people. He's proclaiming this to their hearts, hoping and praying that they would repent. Number three, they had become traitors to truth. Verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that, that, has, been, uh, that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, he says, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is addressing a problem he's already addressed in Matthew chapter 5 where the religious leaders had begun to teach the people that promises were only valid based upon what you promised upon. Obviously, there were aspects of the temple. So if you made a promise or you made a commitment or you swore to do something, then you might want to choose the most sacred thing in that temple to swear upon Because if you sweared upon something that was less valuable or important, then you didn't really have to keep your promise. And so really, Jesus is really addressing the simple idea of the truthfulness of people who follow after Christ. These religious leaders had made a mockery of truth. I mean, the very idea and declaration that they are hypocrites, it means that they are pretenders, that they are putting on an act. And so by their very action, they did not hold to truth. They did not, not only did they not live out truth, they did not preach the truth. And not only that, we talked about last week, they replaced the truth with their own traditions. And here in their practice they, have, they had taught the people that there were basically levels of truthfulness. And they were giving them a license to lie or not be committed. 
based upon what they promised. Excuse me. And the, 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 the simple and most simple way to, to narrow this down into a, a, a positive truth is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he simply says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more of this comes from evil. It's an aspect of commitment, of truthfulness. Satan is the father of lies. Satan wants us to break our commitments. Satan wants us to twist our words, to not hold to our promises. And he slowly dilutes the trust that we have in one another, just like he was doing in the trust with the Jewish people so that they had to swear upon the temple or the gold in the temple or the altar or what was on the altar as if to make their promise legitimate instead of just being truthful across the board. And this is what the nature of sin does, people. Church, the nature of sin, it divides us from truth and error. It divides us from commitment or non-commitment. And the simple command from Jesus in Matthew 5 is fulfill your commitments. If you say you're going to do something, be truthful and do it. If you say you can't do something, then fulfill those things. But there's no reason that we need to swear upon items of this earth. We just need to be truthful as God is truthful. He is the God of truth. And we must simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. I can't stress this enough for commitments to the church today. We live in a culture that does not hold to the promise that I will be a faithful member of so-and-so church. It's a sad state of affairs in our world today As if there's so many options out there that we can randomly jump from one to the other when our needs aren't met and our, our, our ears aren't tickled. And the church structure and the church leadership in these environments are no better because they're willing to receive members into a church and not connect back with their previous church and find out if that commitment is even legitimate. So all we are doing is we are passing on poor commitments between uh, false or, or unfaithful church members from one pastor in one church to another. And we're happy to do so because so many pastors are just tempted to fill their seats with warm bodies. And all they're doing is inviting problems into the church because they were never dealt with at the church previously because there was unfaithful commitment and membership. And so we have to focus on being people that are faithful to truth. And in that truth, we say, yes, I will be a faithful husband. Yes, I will be a faithful wife. Yes, 
I will be a faithful church member or a faithful employee, and we do it because it honors the Lord Jesus. Because truth matters to him. Leon Moore says that it is preposterous to think that God is going to be concerned with the precise form of words a man uses in swearing an oath so that maybe God would take seriously an oath sworn by the gold of the temple but would not regard an oath by the temple itself in the same way. To maintain such a distinction, he says, is both foolish and blind. Number four, the Pharisees were majors on the minors. Verse 23 through 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you have ought to done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Obviously, as the title suggests, hypocrites are, are interested in focusing on those things that appear most splendid to the people that can see them. And in doing so, they major on the minors. Jesus references their desire to tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are tiny herbs pulled from a garden that if offered to the Lord on the altar as a proper offering is received with gladness by the Lord. But what we see in Jesus' rebuke is that these Pharisees are not even offering that with a proper heart of sacrifice to God. They are giving the very least and thinking that it is appropriate while ignoring the great doctrines of mercy and faithfulness and justice that they are called to show to God's people. They're doing the very least and saying that they are honoring God. They're giving the very least and feeling that they are somehow fulfilling what God has called them to do. But a heart that longs for God doesn't ignore the great doctrines of God, the great characteristics of God like justice and mercy and faithfulness, Those are the backbones of our Christian faith. Those are the very things that as as an overflow of our love for God and his work in our heart, we demonstrate these things. Jesus is not saying only focus on justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He is saying you should have done both. A heart that truly loves God is willing to give a a portion of what grows and, and what you've received from God's abundance. 
as well as reflecting the character of God to those around you. And so God demands our love and our devotion and our very lives as an offering to him. Not the very least from our gardens, not the very least from our time, not the very least from our bank accounts, while we need to neglect the very things that God has called us to reflect, which is the image of Christ. Self-sacrifice unity, thinking of others more important than ourselves. And of course, because of the nature of sin, we can't do these things. Because of the nature of sin, we struggle to show those things. It's not in us supernaturally to truly show the love of God, and so the love of God must be reborn within us. We can't understand his justice and mercy and faithfulness until it has literally ravaged our, our, the nature of sin in our lives and been cast out and replaced with love and, and mercy and grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so these Pharisees were majoring on the minors because the minors were easy to accomplish for them. And even their offering of mint, dill, and cumin meant absolutely nothing to God because their heart lacked devotion to him. And as we've read elsewhere in the Gospels, not only their offerings were made publicly so people could see, but their prayers were as well. Remember, they were the ones standing saying, Lord, please help me not to be like this sinner over here who's weeping at the altar, broken over their sin. Help me not to be like this dirty sinner. Elsewhere, Jesus says that they carry out long, exuberant prayers before the people trying to sound religious. But he calls them to the carpet and says, simply, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Can you think of how even Christians major on the minors? If you've ever been in really rigid congregations that proclaim the name of Jesus, but cast burdens and yokes upon the people that are too hard to bear. I would say that many churches are born out of majoring on the minors. This does not honor the Lord. This does not bring glory to his name. This is not something that increases his kingdom. It merely just fills the landscape of our country with churches that do not preach the gospel and lead people astray. So we can major on the minors here. We can strive for the most ornate building, the largest congregation, the, the biggest church staff. Is that what is important today? Is that what 
is necessary in the church? Or should we have a better metric, one that reflects spiritual birth, spiritual growth, reproduction into healthy churches? These are the things that are necessary. These are the major things of the doctrines of God and the purpose of the church that we must be committed to as Redemption Community Church or we become those who major on the minors. We must be the ones that are out in the community proclaiming the gospel regardless of what our building looks like. Regardless, regardless how big our church staff is or how many parking spots we might have. Number five, these men were simply dead men that were dressed up. Verse 27, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This fifth element is simply the foundation of the nature of sin, and that is spiritual deadness. Jesus is obviously teaching during Passover time, and during that time, the, as pilgrims entered the city and they traveled across the lands toward Jerusalem, they would oftentimes encounter outside the city walls kind of like a pauper's grave. And of course, the Jewish people were very uh, considerate and um, they reflected upon uh, not being contaminated by a grave or a dead body. And so clearly it was a concern of the Jewish people to not come in contact with these pauper graves. These are not graves that were hewn in a rock or one that which Jesus was buried in. These were typical graves that we would consider today, but they were just buried on the roadside. And what the Jewish people would do during feasts and festivals like this when many pilgrims would come is they would go out and they would mark those graves by whitewashing them. Literally like painting them, cleaning them. Why? So that they would stand out for pilgrims so that pilgrims would not walk upon those graves, encounter the dead bodies and the, the grave itself and thus be uh, defiled. And what a beautiful illustration for the Lord Jesus. Knowing that this had just happened, knowing that these pilgrims had seen these things and making the simple statement of what was contained within those graves, dead bodies. And while that grave may look pretty, it may look ornate, even in a lowly state, it was full of the deadness and the defilement and Jesus is clearly making a condemnation to these men that no matter how much you dress yourselves up religiously within, you are dead. You have no life within you. You are playing spiritual dress up. Like my daughter Mila sits 
at a table in her room and, and sets her, her teddy bears and her stuffed animals around and, and plays tea with them. The reality is there's absolutely nothing, there's no life within those imaginary friends that sit at that table. And these religious leaders are not being cute. They are literally leading people astray. They are calling themselves spiritual teachers, and yet within them, they are spiritually dead. And so Jesus is just drawing out the great truth of God's word that for us to be able to measure spiritual deadness, we must understand that what the heart, uh, from out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And Jesus is clearly laying waste and proclaiming the hypocrisy of these men by saying, you think you are dressed up spiritually, but we are truly seeing the deadness in your own heart. That the nature of sin, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, brings forth deadness in our trespasses and sins. That we are separated from God. And the only change that we can ever experience is spiritual life, newness, not some makeup, not a religious outfit or practice that we who are spiritual must be made alive. And with that, with that living uh, new life that Christ only brings to the sinner, we are so transformed that we bring forth fruit, good fruit, characteristics, uh, characteristic of God and his word. When Jesus Christ makes us alive, the Bible says he takes a heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And that heart is a heart that beats after God. It longs after God. It finds satisfaction in God that only he can provide. And these Pharisees were simply men that were dead, that were dressing them up, dressing themselves up to appear to be spiritually alive. And so Jesus concludes with number six in simply this, that these men were enemies of evil. And his final condemnation, his final woe, he says in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we have lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Ah, the rhetorical question of Jesus. That these enemies of evil were so entrenched in their sin that they actually believed that they were not guilty or would not be guilty like their forefathers of murdering the prophets 
And yet, ironically, they were the very ones plotting the murder of Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king. That they, that they were not even able to see their own sin. And so Jesus had to make this known to them. Because those who are so blinded by sin don't see their sin until the Holy Spirit makes their eyes awakened and and are able to see the scales falling off of their eyes so that they can see how they've offended the holiness of God. One of the greatest tragedies of the sinful human heart is the misunderstanding that they are in a neutral place with God. And the very statement that Jesus is making is, you are not in a neutral place, you are an enemy of God. That the very evil in your heart is in rebellion and treason against the the one who made you and created you, whom you call Father. And you are demonstrating your rebellion against him By filling up the measure of your fathers, you are carrying on the lineage of your fathers. You are doing what your fathers did before you, which is murdering the prophets. Which is attacking the authorities and the leadership of God and his kingdom. And so you are what many people were familiar with in Jesus' time they were the serpents and the vipers that disguised themselves among the landscape until it was too late and you were bitten they disguised themselves among the landscape until it was too late and you were bitten and you were killed by their venom And it's so important for us as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ that we continue to proclaim, as we proclaim the gospel, the need for the gospel. That as Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, was buried, or who died and was buried and rose victorious from the grave, he did so to save the enemies of God. Not just people who've made some bad mistakes in their life. We must call sin, sin. We must define sin as treason and rebellion and adultery against God. This is the, sta- the, uh, the position that a sinner stands in before a holy God. Not some helpless individual who's taken the wrong path. No, the very one who has shaken their fist at God and said, no, I'll go my own way. Thank you very much. A few days later, after Jesus preaches this sermon, he goes upon the cross and he dies. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, he becomes our way of escape from the sin nature that we're all born into. And so this morning, as we conclude, let us consider Jesus 
as the one who needs to de-Pharisee your heart. I made that up. De-Pharisee you. And hopefully in our time this morning, you've seen and, and thought about and reflected upon these different characteristics and qualities that even as believers, we continue to struggle with so that our prayer would be, Jesus, continually de-Pharisee my heart. Consider that Jesus is the one who rescues us from this nature of depravity. That instead of being a stumbling block to religion, Jesus provides the only path of salvation. For it was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Consider Jesus who was not a disciple makers of renegades from God, but a reproducer, reproducer of true followers of Jesus or of God. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He told his disciples these things. Not, cor not corrupting disciples, but disciples who will reproduce themselves and grow the kingdom of God for the glory of God in his name. Consider Jesus who did not just proclaim the true nature of God and his word. He is God and is the living word. And in his all-sufficient power, he taught us that, that man-made traditions do not lead to eternal salvation. That only through being born again can we see the kingdom of God. And so the question this morning that you must consider is have you trusted in Jesus alone to effect spiritual change or are you clinging to the traditions of religion and of man for your hope of salvation? Because it's only Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh in the perfect likeness of men, who represents us in his death on the cross, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, we do not remain dead when we trust in him, but we have victory as he raises us to new life, and he affects change in us, and we have hope in his name, and we have power in his resurrection to overcome these struggles and these difficulties as believers in Christ Jesus. And so not only does he de-Pharisee us, he will continue to do those things in our lives as we trust in him until he returns and makes us perfect by his glory and power.